Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Are you caring for an aging parent? Are you searching for answers? Welcome to Senior Care Live, a program dedicated to you, providing information, education, and resources, helping you become the best caregiver you can be. I'm your host, Steve Keeker. Hello and welcome to Senior Care Live. Thanks for tuning in today. I really appreciate it. This program is all about educating seniors and their caregivers, helping them make informed decisions. This is a trusted place for you and your family. If you have a question, you can always visit online at Senior Care Live, L I V E, seniorcarelive.com, or you could call us at 1 800 331 6445. All right, so we have an excellent, excellent program uh, for you here today. would like to uh, introduce my friend and special guest today, Mr. David Wiley. He's the president and CEO of Kansas City Hospice and Palliative Care. And uh, David, welcome back to Senior Care Live. Thanks, Steve. It's good to be here today with you. All right, so David, April 16th is National Healthcare Decisions Day. So let's start our conversation today uh, talking about the important topic of advanced care planning. Can you explain to us what Healthcare Decisions Day is and why that's so important? Sure, Steve. You know, Healthcare Decisions Day is meant to encourage people to plan for their future healthcare needs uh, and, and to really to make their wishes for their healthcare known. Uh, it's important for healthcare providers and family members to understand what your wishes are so that they can respect them. And it's an opportunity to be proactive in considering, you know, what you want in certain circumstances and to document and communicate the plan um, that you have outlined to your loved ones. And it helps your family, you know, frankly, be prepared uh, to honor your wishes in the event that you can no longer communicate those wishes um, to your healthcare providers. So National Healthcare Decisions Day, it's very important to, to healthcare providers as we have seen what happens when people, they don't take the time to consider their own plan and what their care uh, you know, should be when they're in a health crisis. 
Absolutely. And some of those uh, some of those circumstances have made national news. It's always uncomfortable, but uh, gosh, they just could have taken care of that so easily. So, you know, I, I think we can all agree we don't want to be in a situation where we can't speak for ourselves. Uh, and, and then others have to make those decisions for us, not knowing exactly what we would want. And frankly, that puts them in a really difficult spot, David. Absolutely, it does. And, you know, we all need to be prepared in the event of a health crisis, um, even those of us who are still, I guess, relatively young and healthy, <laughs> you know, have having the talk is is probably easier than most people think. But uh, many of us need a little inspiration or a reminder to do this. And uh, this is the message of National Healthcare Decisions Day. Okay, so what are some of the things people should consider? You know, there is a lot to consider, um, Steve. Basically, from how much information the doctor should share with your family to actually which family member will be the primary decision maker. So thinking through things before a medical crisis will help you make decisions based on what you value most, uh, you know, without the influence of stress and fear. So communicating your preferences really empowers you to, to have a voice in your care no matter what. So planning for the future healthcare choices, it doesn't have to be complicated. You know, you can start with a family conversation, maybe around a meal or if you actually sit at a dinner table, that type of thing. But sharing the choices through conversation is really an important first step. So planning your final days obviously is never easy, but in the long run, the conversations will really be a gift to those that you love and it will give them confidence to act knowing on your behalf and providing comfort in knowing that your wishes were were actually honored. So, you know, studies show that when there's a meaningful conversation about end-of-life choices, survivors really feel less guilty and uh, or less guilt, and they feel, you know, less depression about having uh, to make, um, you know, a difficult decision. It, it, and it also is provides an easier process for grieving. Absolutely. And, and it really is a gift to your family. You're really taking them off the hook and just having them uh, do uh, just carry out your preferences in, in your choices. It, it is a beautiful gift, frankly. So it can make a real difference to the entire family, in addition to the patient, of course, and that's really important. So can you offer some tips for people who haven't yet gone through this process or had that conversation with their loved ones? Of course. You know, there's a really great resource called The Conversation Project, and their goal is to help families overcome the communication barrier with the mission to have everyone's end-of-life wishes expressed and respected. So there's a link to more information about this campaign on our website at kchospice.org. But in short, there, um, there are three important steps to take to ensure that your future care preferences are known. And, and this is known as the three Ds, decide, discuss, and document. Okay, so the three Ds, decide, discuss, and document, that's really easy to remember. So uh, what are some questions people should consider? So um, again, on our website, Steve, at kchospice.org, we have some great resources to help people consider what's most important and communicate those decisions to their families. It's about you and your personal beliefs and your preferences and what you believe will give the most comfort and peace in your last days. These things could include things like 
Um, you know, how involved do you want to be in understanding your condition or your treatment? So do you, you know, want to know the basics or do you want to know all of the details and play an active role in managing your disease? Do you prefer to rely on your doctors to do what they think is best or do you want to have a say in every decision? If you have a terminal illness, do you want to know how quickly it's progressing or do you want to know your doctor's best estimate for how long you have to live? So you might also want to consider how long you want to have um, you know, medical care. Do you, do you want to try every possible option, regardless of discomfort or potential for cure, or is the quality of life more important? So you, know, you want to spend your last days in a hospital is another important question. Uh, would you prefer to be at home with support or maybe somewhere in between, like maybe the Kansas City Hospice House or the Northcare Hospice House? So all of these things are really important to document. Yeah, no doubt. Definitely some important things to consider. So what comes next? You know, Steve, the conversation project, um, that study says that more than 90% of people think that it's important to have these conversations about end of life with their loved ones, yet less than 30% actually have done so. So planning planning for accidents or sudden illness, I know it, it can feel awkward, but conversations with family members today can ensure that your preferences are honored and that your caregivers don't have to guess what you want. So, you know, it's simpler than you think to get started. And there's a few tips if I could share them with you. Um, you know, first, a really important one is to choose an advocate. And this should be somebody who knows you well, is calm in a crisis, understands your decision, and um, they're not afraid to ask questions, and of course, they're going to advocate on your behalf. Uh, talk with your advocate and your doctor about your future preferences. Let them know what's most important to you in life, um, the activities and abilities that make life worth living, things that you give that you get comfort from when you're sick. So when, if ever, you, your advocate decides that it's time to, you know, quote, let go. Um, and who they should include in that decision. So write it down. You want to formalize your decisions. Putting them in writing is really important. You can also go to our website at kchospice.org to find resources to help you with this. You want to give copies of your plan to your advocate, your family members, and your doctors, and then you want to review it with them, and you want to update that um, whenever your preference or situation changes. And I think a good rule of thumb is every tax day or the day after, which is April 16th, make sure that you, you know, kind of review that again. And I just want you to know that I, I've really seen firsthand the sense of peace, calm, and satisfaction that families experience knowing that their loved one's wishes are granted. You know, you don't want to make people guess what you want. You really want to make your future care preferences known. Yeah, no doubt about that. I've seen some real disasters um, just out in, out in, in public. Yeah. Uh, I, I've seen one of these some of these documents uh, not updated. There was a divorce. It was a, an ugly divorce, and now mm -hmm. uh, the divorced spouse has literal total say <laughs> over what happens to you uh, should you become incapacitated. Uh, so I love that reminder every year, the day after tax day. Just take a look and see if you need to update that. That would serve you very, very well. I love that tip, David. And then I, I'm always reminded of, uh, gosh, this was back in the 90s, I think, 
uh, or maybe early 2000s, the Terry Schiavo case in Florida, where, uh, you know, she was mm-hmm. in a vegetative state and her husband said she would never want to live like this. Her parents said, keep her on the ventilator, keep her going. She might wake up. And it ended up going up to the president of the United States. And um, it was just such a public, public issue. It was just a tragedy all the way around. I don't think anyone won on that one. Uh, but uh, a simple document could have taken care of it. Isn't that right, David? It really could. And, you know, Steve, speaking for myself, uh, my mom died 10 years ago this year, and uh, seeing her wishes in her handwriting with her signature really allowed us to make the right decision when it was time. Wow. And and you mentioned earlier, uh, being a gift, that was a beautiful gift to you and your family. So, uh, so that's excellent. So, all right, David, so we'll pick this up uh, here in just a second. But first, the Senior Care Live question of the week. The best time to make an advanced care plan is later in life or after you've been diagnosed with a disease. Is that statement true or false? The answer coming up next. You're listening to Senior Care Live on the Senior Care Broadcasting Network. For more information, call now, toll free, 1-800-331-6445. Operators are standing by, 1-800-331-6445. I'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to Senior Care Live on the Senior Care Broadcasting Network. For more information, visit SeniorCareLive.com. And don't forget, you can stream this program to any electronic device at SeniorCareLive.com and through the app Odyssey.com. And that's A-U-D-A-C-Y.com. All right, back to the Senior Care Live question of the week. The best time to make an advanced care plan is later in life or after you've been diagnosed with a disease. Is that statement true or false? And the answer is... False. The answer is false. It is never too early, let me tell you that, to start thinking about your future health care needs and making your health care wishes known early on ensures your loved ones know your wishes and can honor your preferences. So having an advanced care plan in place makes sure your health care providers and your family, and I think that might that's just as important, uh, have the information they need should a sudden illness occur. All right, so David, you gave us a lot of great information before the break about the importance of Healthcare Decisions Day and how people can get started in having a conversation about advanced care planning with their loved ones. And I want to remind people that they can visit kchospice.org. That's kchospice.org for more information. And you can also find some great tips for getting started. So uh, we're going to shift gears here a bit and welcome Lane Foster, uh, Kansas City Hospice's Volunteer Coordinator for Community Partnerships and Special Events, to talk about volunteers and the role they play in hospice. So April is National Volunteer Month, so it's a good time to remind people about the important role of volunteers play in our community as a whole, and in particular, what a difference they make to the work at Kansas City Hospice. So Lane, welcome to Senior Care Live. 
Thank you, Steve. I'm so glad we're taking the time to recognize volunteers because we truly could not do this work without them. I don't know if you know this, but Medicare actually requires that hospice volunteers provide 5% of hospice patient care hours. Now this requirement was waived during the pandemic, but Kansas City hospice volunteers still provided 5.87% of patient care hours in 2020. That is interesting. That's fantastic. I can imagine it was really hard to keep volunteers engaged with all the restrictions that have been needed to keep everyone safe. Um, and and I and I didn't realize that that was a requirement, the five percent. And you, in a pandemic, exceeded it. That's fantastic. So how'd you keep everyone safe? <laughs> Well, in order to keep everyone safe during the pandemic, we did have to limit visitors in our hospice houses and in the long-term care facilities in which we work. Unfortunately, it also included volunteers. And our hospice volunteers fill such a variety of roles, and many of them work directly with patients and their families, you know, providing care, comfort, and support. But despite the pandemic, more than 350 Kansas City hospice volunteers and many community volunteers still found ways to help hundreds of hospice patients and families. In fact, it added up to a total of 9,496 formal programming hours in 2020. Wow, that is amazing. And can you share with us what types of things volunteers were able to continue doing last year? Well, in the early days of the pandemic, volunteers spent countless hours procuring hand sanitizer and cloth mask donations and assembling face guards and PPE kits. Throughout the pandemic, SOAST made more than 5,800 fabric face masks for our offices, our hospice houses, patients and families, and others made ear protectors to make those masks more comfortable. A few of our volunteers donned PPE and manned our hospice house front desks, uh, screening visitors and facilitating family porch visits, things like that. One volunteer wrote weekly notes of support to staff at every location, and another dropped off weekly grab-and-go snacks for staff. Some of our volunteers were also still able to provide some of those traditionally contactless volunteer services, things like assisting with yard work, home repairs, grocery shopping. Our Lasting Conversations volunteers also found a way to use some new technology to continue recording patients' life stories. And some of our volunteers used all that extra time at home to make things for families, more than they ever have before. Um, they made things like message books, memory books, memory keeper envelopes, kid activity bags, memorial hearts. Dozens of our area quilters and knitters made more than 575 lap blankets for our hospice house patients and families. And a few volunteers even made dozens of cover bags for our patients' medication pumps. That is phenomenal. It sounds like volunteers found ways to adapt uh, what they had already been doing. So were there any other creative things that came into place or new volunteer activities from last year? Absolutely. Uh, dozens of our volunteers provided support and companionship with some weekly phone calls to our patients and caregivers. Uh, one team of our volunteers formed a tuck-in program where they call newly admitted hospice patients families just to ensure that they're feeling comfortable and they have everything they need. A new pen pal program was born. Um, volunteers have spent more than 250 hours in the past year corresponding with hospice patients who were isolated in long-term care facilities. In fact, two local artists, one of whom was the first nurse ever hired by Kansas City Hospice, made that program really special by drawing and painting more than 100 cards 
and a few other community volunteers have also made and donated cards. Last year, window, volunteers made window visits. Um, they painted cheerful art and messages on the windows of some long-term care facilities across the metro. We had some creative volunteers who painted kindness rocks, which were then displayed at some area nursing facilities, and some other sidewalk chalked some messages of hope outside the North Care Hospice House and the Kansas City Hospice House. Wow. So it sounds like volunteers were really able to adapt what families needed under the new and changing circumstances of last year. Yes. In fact, one of my favorite success stories is about how volunteers at our Solace House Center for Grief and Healing, they quickly pivoted to facilitate their peer support group sessions in a whole new way. They've been using online video meeting rooms for participants as young as age four. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Lane, thank you for sharing the incredible work the Kansas City Hospice team of volunteers was able to accomplish this past year. It is truly inspiring. Now, we'll turn back to David to talk more uh, about uh, another important topic. A April is also National Minority Health Month. And David, can you tell us about this and how people can get involved? Sure, Steve. Uh, National Minority Health Month is an initiative to address the healthcare needs of African Americans, Hispanics, Asians, Native Americans, and other minorities. And this is really important to Kansas City Hospice uh, because these populations are particularly underrepresented in healthcare across the spectrum, and it includes hospice services. Um, so the goal is really to strengthen the community's ability to address the disproportionate burden of premature death and preventable illnesses in minority populations. The national focus is on prevention, early detection and controlling disease complications. And at Kansas City Hospice, it's also about ensuring our commitment as an organization to diversity, equity, and inclusion is evident and meaningful to our staff and volunteers and the families that we serve throughout the community. All right, all right, excellent. And uh, David and Lane, can you hang on uh, just for a few more minutes uh, after our upcoming break? I just have a couple more questions. Sure, we'd be happy to. Yes. Okay, all right, excellent. Uh, so if you want to reach out to Kansas City Hospice and Palliative Care, just go online at kchospice.org, or you could also call 816-363-2600. We're going to have more with David and Lane coming up next. You're listening to Senior Care Live on the Senior Care Broadcasting Network. For more information, call now, toll-free, 1-800-331-6445. Operators are standing by, 1-800-331-6445. I'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to Senior Care Live on the Senior Care Broadcasting Network. For more information, go to SeniorCareLive.com. And don't forget to check out our podcasts of all of the recently aired episodes, again, online at SeniorCareLive.com. And uh, David and Lane, thanks so much for staying over a little bit longer with me here today. I really appreciate it. So, uh, David, what are some of the things going on in our community as part of National Minority Health Month? Thanks, Steve. You know, um, the Kansas City Parks and Recreations Department is hosting a series of outdoor, socially distant events at Blues Park, and that's happening every Saturday in April from 10 a.m. to noon, and Blues Park is at 2000 
Prospect Boulevard. And City Councilwoman Melissa Robinson will be attending, and it will be a fun and safe way to get out and be active. And then other information about National Minority Health Month, including important minority health resources, can be found at the National Minority Quality Forum, which is website, which is nmqf.org. That's nmqf.org. And one of the goals of the initiative is to empower people to take control of their health by getting informed about the health complications they might be at risk for, uh, learning uh, how to prevent these and to address these risks. So I encourage people to visit the website and learn more information about those efforts. Okay, and that website again, nmqf.org. And David, you've also made a commitment to diversity and equity and inclusion at Kansas City Hospice. Can you tell us about that commitment? Sure. You know, um, last year, uh, just, you know, in the wake of all the social unrest that was going on, we decided that we wanted to take action. And so we formed an employee resource group that was focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And really, our goal was to perform um, a systematic review of our, um, our practices, our policies, our culture, and our structure so that we could assure positive steps are being taken to address um, essentially conscious and unconscious bias and, and to identify some potential changes. So we, we made an effort. We, we have six focus areas. That they range from uh, patient care, our business practices, education, uh, both as, for staff and management. Uh, we have a focus on internal and external communications, our recruitment practices, and finally, last but not least, our board leadership, our board of directors, which are committed to this effort as well. And we've devoted all of our board education this year um, on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I'm, I'm really proud of the, the, uh, the efforts that we've taken as a team. That, that is excellent. It's important. And uh, I'm so glad. It's just it's a really important subject and, and subject matter and topic. So I'm glad that uh, you and Lane uh, agreed to stay over with me just a little bit uh, here today. So uh, David Wiley and Lane Foster with Kansas City Hospice and Palliative Care. Thank you both so much uh, for joining me here today to talk about these very, very important topics. Thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. It was good to be here. Steve, we always appreciate the chance to uh, talk about these important things and uh, giving us time. So appreciate the, appreciate the time. You are welcome. All right. That was really, really important information. I want to go back to something that Lane said, uh, just not to skip over that. Um, and, and we covered it. I just want to emphasize it, I guess. In 2020, I mean, so many things fell apart in the name of covid and uh, a, a lot of organizations just kind of laid down um, and they're they just really paralyzed with with all of the restrictions and everything. Uh, but 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 listen, I just want to emphasize this. Lane said that Medicare requires volunteers uh, to provide five percent of hospice patient care hours. And that's news to me. I, I did not realize that was a requirement. And so. Guess what Kansas City Hospice did? They didn't use that the pandemic as an excuse. And we're, we can't do this and you can't go in there and everything shut down. Uh, all they did was they got creative. They got the job done and increased 
to 5.87% of patient care hours during a worldwide pandemic in the year of 2020. So, I mean, that is spectacular. That's spectacular. That is not, woe is me, I guess we can't do that, you, you know, kind of leaning on the pandemic. And, and if anyone did that, I mean, with good, with good reason, okay? But that's, that's, Kansas, that's not Kansas City Hospice. They got creative. They figured out how to get the job done and actually exceed the requirement. And I just think that's a big deal. That is one of the many things that I love about Kansas City Hospice and Palliative Care. They get the job done and they do it the right way. It is spectacular work that they do. So, again, thanks to David and Lane for coming in today and staying over with me a little bit on the on the program today. All right, so let's shift gears uh, this past week on March the 30th. That was Doctor's Day. Did you know that? It was Doctor's Day, and that's an annual observance aimed at appreciating physicians who help save lives everywhere. And the holiday first started in 1933 in Georgia. And since then, it's been honored every year on March the 30th, uh, which was the first anniversary of a doctor using ether anesthesia by Dr. Long. And today we continue to celebrate medical advances like these and thank all doctors everywhere who have spent so much time and energy mastering their field of expertise. Okay, so Doctor's Day was unofficially celebrated for many years before it became a legal holiday. And on March the 30th, 1958, the U.S. House of Representatives adopted a resolution that commemorates Doctor's Day. And on October the 30th in 1990, President Bush signed the legislature after approval from both the House and the Senate. How about that? So that? That's pretty good stuff. All right. So and, and then then here are some some interesting statistics, uh, just just kind of some fun stuff to share with you. Um, and, and I'm not sure why they gathered some of these, but I, I, I don't know. It's kind of interesting. Uh, the percentage of doctors in a committed relationship, 82 percent. So you have a lot of family uh, uh, men and women out there who are physicians. Uh, the percentage of doctors whose spouse is also a doctor, 21%. Uh, that's pretty interesting. They probably met their spouse in, uh, in med school uh, somewhere along the way, or maybe, uh, you know, where they maybe on their first job or something like that. Uh, I know my physician, uh, he married a pediatrician and they did meet in med school. So pretty, really smart family there, <laughs> but uh, yeah, pretty cool stuff. Uh, the percentage of doctors whose religion or beliefs uh, help them cope with stress, 76%. I, I think that's great. Uh, the number of close friends most doctors have, somewhere between one and three really close friends, uh, 4% have no close friends. I'm, that's interesting. I'm not sure what to think about that one. Uh, there is an estimated 700,000 doctors in the United States. That's a bunch. And uh, when Hallmark started printing cards 
uh, for Doctor's Day. Uh, that didn't start until 2003. You know, they say, Hallmark, uh, there's a card for everything. And so uh, they, uh, they started printing Doctor's Day cards in 2003. And then 60 hours is the estimated number of hours worked per week uh, by a doctor. And uh, I actually thought that number might be higher. I know a bunch of doctors that work more than that, frankly. Uh, but uh, but th- but that's a lot. They're not uh, they're not sliding in at about thirty hours a week, or even forty, or even fifty. Uh, you know that that's a that's a week and a half's worth of work there, right there. So sixty hours. You know, a lot of doctors are on call and and, and take their ho- their work home with them, et cetera. So sixty hours of work. Uh, per week, uh, the physician and clinical services expenditure in the United States in 2020, $794 billion. That's, uh, that's uh, amazing. So this month, I've seen my optometrist, my ophthalmologist, I'm going to have to have eye surgery, not looking forward to it, <laughs> and my internal medicine doctor for my annual checkup. I also need to see my dentist, uh, note to self, call dentist. <laughs> but uh, anyway, be sure to thank uh, the physicians in your life and tell them, you know, happy Doctor's Day. If you missed it, you can say happy belated Doctor's Day, uh, but uh, they'll, they'll really appreciate that. Um, and, and they may not be looking for that, but, but they definitely will appreciate that. All right, the Senior Care Live Giggle of the Week. All right, so here's a picture of a, of a sweet little lady reading a book, and on the title it says, Fifty Shades of Gray Hair. <laughs> she says, an 86-year-old has written a, a book, a, a romance novel, but all of the steaminess comes from hot flashes. <laughs> and here's another one. You know you're old when your knees give you a more accurate weather forecast than the guy on TV. All right, we're going to have a whole lot more coming up next. You're listening to Senior Care Live on the Senior Care Broadcasting Network. For more information, call now, toll-free, 1-800-331-6445. Operators are standing by, 1-800-331-6445. I'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to Senior Care Live on the Senior Care Broadcasting Network. For more information, visit SeniorCareLive.com. All right, so this past week, I received a couple of calls from a very stressed out, super nice lady. And uh, what she told me made me uh, very upset. Ladies and gentlemen, your attention please. This is a consumer alert. Consumer alert. Okay, so as mentioned uh, this past week, I spoke with just a super nice lady, and uh, she was just, she's just totally stressed out and very upset with the nursing home that her husband is currently in. 
and, uh, and and they're doing a fine job taking care of him. But we have uh, we have some billing issues here. <laughs> so she, she said, and she's basically kind of yelling into the phone, not at me, but she's just super frustrated. I just let her vent, and uh, she said they want way too much money from her each and every month. And so I had to explain that you know. I'm not sure exactly at that point in the conversation, you know, we didn't get into the numbers yet, but I I said, and the fact is when someone moves into a nursing home on Medicaid, their income goes with them. Okay. So, you know, if, 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 if you are the, the wife and your husband moves to a nursing home, his income goes with him and, and vice versa. So that is a fact. So so that that part is correct, and she was okay with that. However, the community spouse or the the spouse still living at home independently, and in this case, it's this nice lady. The community spouse has the right to a minimum amount of income. So so just just think about this. I mean, you have a husband and wife living at home and the two incomes together you have this you have this this household income and then when one moves to the nursing home their income goes with them all of a sudden your household income could take a huge hit and so you have to be able to work with that and understand exactly how it works so the the community spouse does have according to medicaid rules they do have the right to a minimum amount of income and that income and it could be more than this, but it's a minimum of $2,155 per month. So her income is about $655 per month. It's just Social Security. And so that means that she can take $1,500 from her husband's income, the income that went with him to the nursing home, right? She has the right to $1,500 of her husband's income for herself, which gets her up to that minimum allowed level of $2,155. Does that make sense? So her income was pretty small. Her husband's income was was pretty good size, pretty pretty substantial. So she can take some of his income combined with her income to get her up to that minimum number, according to Medicaid rules of $2,155 per month. Then it doesn't stop there. Then she can pay for his Medicare premiums again from his income and say his Medicare premiums, let's say he has a part F or a G or some type of a supplement policy that costs, you know, in, in part D might cost, you know, $200, $250 a month. That comes out of his income so that she could keep up his Medicare. And then there's one more step. He gets to keep $50 a month in just uh, petty cash, just uh, a little bit of money to buy a Diet Coke and a, and a Hershey's bar now and then, right? And then at that point, the nursing home gets the rest of his income. Does that make sense? Well, according to what she shared with me, and now we started getting into numbers because it just didn't sound right. This particular long-term care community or nursing home, they are not calculating that correctly. They're not. They're calculating his uh, patient liability, okay, the amount that his, of his income that they get 
minus $50 minus the, the Medicare premium cost. They're calculating it like he is a single individual and not a married uh, person with the division of assets. They're not calculating it correctly. I'll guarantee you that. They are not allowing her to keep the $1,500 per month from his income. And they will not budge. I told her, I said, listen, you need to call him up and explain that you are a couple. He's not a single. They're calculating it improperly and that you are entitled to $1,500 a month of his income minus the 50 minus his Medicare premium. And the number that they get out of his income is much smaller than what they are saying she owes. They won't budge. And, and, and they're wrong. They're wrong. So I've turned her over to uh, an attorney and to the state, and they're going to get this figured out, hopefully. Uh, but she she says as an option, uh, she thinks she's just, she's so frustrated. And they're saying, you know, they're kind of being mean to her, frankly, with some of the comments. She's pretty upset. Uh, so she, she said that she's taking her husband out of that particular community uh, this past Friday, April the 2nd, and she's just going to take him home and care for him for a while and then figure out her next step. So they told her, here's another, <laughs> here's another issue. They have some billing problems at this place. They told her that she has to pay for the entire month of April. And she said, well, if I don't do, if I pay them that, then I won't be able to pay my bills and, and uh, pay the, uh, you know, the, the electricity, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm saying, well, no, you don't have to pay that. He's going to be there for a day and a half into the month. Okay, so the, the nursing homes actually bill on a daily basis, not a monthly basis, like you typically see in assisted living. Now, they may collect a check up at the first of the month for the whole month's cost, but if you move out any time during that month, they have to prorate those days and then provide a refund. So she's, uh, she's going to take him out on the second of the month. I told her, look, just pay them for those two days and uh, they will figure it out <laughs> in, in their billing. So, uh, so a couple of issues with this one super nice lady, uh, and she, she might be listening now, but uh, uh, she, she says, all right, to, to share just some of the details of this, um, not names, of course. But, uh, but the bottom line is, <laughs> this is why I always, 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 always recommend working with an elder law attorney. And here's why. They work for you, and they work in your best interest, right? The nursing home, hey, they're just doing a calculation. Here's what you owe us, and they're just wrong, and they just don't really care at this particular place. So, the, uh, you know, the elder law attorneys will not allow you to make the mistake of overpaying, period. And, and I've, this is not the first time I've heard about this either, Okay. So just be very careful out there. There are a lot of great people working in senior care, and they know exactly what they're doing, and they do their billing correctly. I mean, there are a lot of great people out there. However, however, and I've, I've complained about it on the show before, there are lots of people also working in senior care that just frankly do not know what they're talking about. Proceed with caution. This has been a Consumer Alert, brought to you by Senior Care Live.
Okay, so so one of these days, very, very soon, I will have uh, an experienced and qualified elder law firm on the program, and uh, I'm going to have them go through all of this f- uh, for us in detail. All right, what an excellent show we had for you there today. I, I hope you enjoy that as much as I did. All right, I'm your host, Steve Keeker, and I wish you grace and peace. May God bless you and your family on this day and always. Join me next week right here on Senior Care Live. Senior Care Live.